0: Hey everyone, it's Brian, and I am here today with my longtime friend and colleague, Barb Vilas. Hey, Barb, say hi. Hey
1: there, how are you, Brian?
0: Good, good, good. Uh, we're, we're having a nice, cold, snowy Denver wintry day today. Uh, I imagine you're having about the same type of weather.
1: I just actually drove over from Grand Junction this morning, and it was sunny and gorgeous all the way to Idaho Springs, and then it was nasty all the way into Golden, so I'm (laughs) in it
0: now. (laughs) Okay, yeah. yeah. So Barb, you you are one of the pillars of the mining industry, especially in the U.S., and I thought you could give us just a little bit of background on yourself.
1: Pillars of the mining industry, that's an interesting... (laughs) Uh, thought. <laughs> I am a mining engineer. Uh, graduated back in the dark ages in 1978. I was the second female graduate from in the mining engineering department from the uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. And uh, you know, I got I graduated and got out of school and and uh, went to work for Monterey Coal Company in underground coal, and spent a couple of years there. And then I worked for a a flim flam man in, in, uh, in Salt Lake City, actually that was, I worked for U.S. Steel for five years in between in the underground coal mines in in uh, Utah. Then I worked for a flim flam man for a year, which was interesting, but that's a whole podcast in and of itself. And then I worked for Atlas Minerals for a while, and then I worked a long time with you at Peace PESOL. And now I do a little bit of part-time work with the Colorado School of Mines.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and uh, after you left KP, you went off to be a ultimately a general manager at a mining company. Or- oh, I guess
1: I forgot about that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: slipped there You were no, an I executive. Lef- yeah, I left uh, uh, KP to, to join Givick Mining Corp, which is mm-hmm. was publicly traded in the U.S. and Canada. I joined as vice president of corporate development. I had to go to Wikipedia to see what corporate developers <laughs> did. So, uh, but uh, I ultimately became the president of of that company, and uh, we had our major asset was a cobalt nickel deposit, the largest known cobalt deposit in the world, in Cameroon. So that was a, it was a fun part of my time. But I really went there because Knight Peacehold had worked on the the environmental permitting and social responsibility piece. We had done the tailings design and and, uh, civil geotechnical work. So i had been involved with the project for probably five years before I joined Geovic. And uh, I went there to build that mine. And when the board decided they wanted to uh, be a find-it-and-flip-it type of company, I didn't want to be a find-it-and-flip-it. I wanted to build the mine. So I left to go do something else.
0: Ah, yeah. And I uh, remember the day that you resigned from KP. It was in a management meeting and you'd sent everybody an email and it was password protected and everybody kept saying, Barb, I need the password, I need the password. And you kept saying, just calm down. And you, you gave a little bit of explanation of what was going on and you said, and by the way, the password is resignation. And that, <laughs> that actually that, that floored a lot of us. Um, uh, it, like you say, you were at KP for a good long time, and, and I don't, most of us didn't see it coming at all.
1: Well, I had done pretty much everything I wanted to do at Peace Sold. I, you know, I started at the staff level and came up through the ranks to where I ended up president of the company. And I had no desire to be the CEO of the global organization which was the only other step to go so uh, I thought I really wanted to go build a mine and uh, uh, the GIVIC group was a wonderful group to work with and uh, so I just the opportunity lent itself and I thought you know I need to pounce on it now or I might just sit here and do the same thing for the next 10 years of my career and always look back and wonder why I didn't take a chance.
0: Yeah, and that was the same reason that we moved to South Africa was because you don't want to look back and say, I wonder what would have happened.
1: No, I totally agree with that. I think that you just got to follow your heart. And my heart said, I don't you know, night piece was doing very well when I left. And uh, from a financial perspective, it wasn't necessarily a decision that was etched in gold. It was a decision that was because I really wanted to do that. And so, uh, and, and I'm not, not even though things didn't quite work out the way I had hoped, I'm still not sorry that I did it, because uh, what I'm doing now at, at Colorado School of Mines takes advantage of what I learned throughout my career, not only at Knight Peacehold but elsewhere, but also what I learned at Geovic, because I jumped into a company, like I said, I had to look on Wikipedia to what corporate development was, because I really didn't, I needed to to I wanted to learn what it took to run a publicly traded company and I came in as a novice.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, put you right into the deep end there, didn't they? Yeah. So wh- why don't you why don't you expand on what you're doing at the School of Mines now?
1: What we're doing at at Mines it's a professional master's in mining engineering and management. So, Mines if you're if you're not a you don't have a Ph.D. and 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 then they hire you if you're old and you've worked a lot of years, (laughs) they hire you as a professor of practice. So I'm a half-time professor of practice at Mines, and a colleague of Mines a fellow from Hazen who's about my age. Uh, We both do the we 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 designed this professional masters program it's fully online it's not offered on campus and the way I describe it is it's everything I wish I would have known when I took over to run the company at night peace old or when I took over to run the company at Jivik uh, as a mining engineer you learn the basics of mining engineering you know how to dig holes how to blow stuff up those kinds of things what you don't I learned by on the job because of the timing of my graduation I learned the environmental responsibility and over time just by my on the job training I learned the social responsibility piece and the closure piece and some of those but those are things you don't learn in school and you don't, and you get a little touch of accounting and finance but you really don't get what you need to know to sit in an executive position and allocate millions of dollars for Uh, purchases and what questions to ask and those kinds of things. So what we did is we said, okay, we want this to be a third business, a third related resources like health and safety, environmental social responsibility, water, waste, closure, those kinds of things. And then the rest is just where the state of the practice is in the traditional mining systems, whether it's geology, mining, or metallurgy. But we aren't teaching you how to design a mine because there's lots of programs that do that. It's more of the what's what's the state of the practices, what are the weaknesses, what are the opportunities, and where's the mining industry going in the future?
0: Oh, uh, that's that's great, Barb. And on the show notes to this podcast, I'll put in some information about that so people can can find that. But if they were to go online and and try to do some research, w- would they? Well, what they Google?
1: It's uh, Professional Masters Colorado School of Mines, and you'll get to the Mining Department. So I think it's mines dot uh, or uh, mining mines edu slash Professional Masters if I remember correctly. But I I'd, I'd Google just general words.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. That sounds sounds good. So Barb, you said that you you kind of switched from being a mining engineer to working on the environmental side. Was that uh, a deliberate move or is it something that that just happened as as your career evolved
1: it actually happened very early in my career my first job out of school was was in the coal mines in carlinville illinois and uh i went in i started out as a as a mine designer and under designing having gone to arizona which is an open pit hard rock copper school yeah they had me designing open underground coal mines so that was all new but then with time i got transferred out to run the refuse area at the number one mine so i learned about you know waste management and planning for closure and things like that and then when i left uh when i left uh Monterey. I went to work for U.S. Steel, and I and that was shortly after. That was 1980-ish, and uh, the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act for coal mines was passed in '77. So I went to work for the Western District in the in the coal patch, and Colorado and Utah, where what U.S. Steel's uh, Uh, mines were in the western district and those states had just passed their primacy laws for mine land reclamation under smackra so i ended up being the new kid on the block all the self-respecting mining engineers wanted to do mine design and stuff (laughs) like that so so i ended up getting the the permitting job and we did our permits in-house for two uh, two underground coal mines one in utah one in in uh, Colorado and then for our, our coal cleaning plant, which was also in Utah. So by the time we got done with that, I had five years of experience in mine permitting from the dawn of time of when mine permitting started and nobody else had that kind of experience. So it was kind of, I, I just kind of kept going along those lines throughout my career.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I, I have a trivia question for you now. So when when you and I first met that was at the Atlas Gold Bar mine in Nevada and there was a payphone at the mine Do you remember what the phone number was at the payphone
1: Oh no absolutely not but I do remember what my phone number was in Carlinville Illinois <laughs> And, well, and you know why? I, I loved that phone number, it was the best phone number ever, it was yeah. 854-4077 and you never had to dial the first three numbers because it was a real small town. Oh. So all I had to do is tell people my phone number was 4077 just like MASH and nobody forgot my phone number ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, you won't forget the one at Gold Bar after I tell you this story. So I, I needed to make a phone call in the days before cell phones of course. And so I go out to the phone booth, and there's no dial on the phone. So I pick up the receiver and put it to my ear, and an operator comes online and says, Can I have the number you're calling from, please? And I said, I'm sorry, there's not a dial here or anything. There's nothing that tells me the phone number. And she says, Yes, sir, I, I guarantee you there's a phone number on there. And I'm looking around and around, and I said, Well, there's, there's only one thing on the phone but it's not a phone number and she says well what is it and I said Rutabaga one <laughs> and she says well, that's it Rutabaga one
1: <laughs> Rutabaga one
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well I don't remember that so <laughs> you got one on me <laughs> yeah
0: okay um the, the the courses that you're teaching at school of minds that must be pretty Um, demanding time wise just to put the curriculum together is that uh, I mean just to give a public presentation can take a half a week to give a half an hour presentation for me yeah
1: no, it's, it's it's a whole nother world when you, it comes to online education and a lot of people think that online education is just putting a camera in the back of a face-to-face classroom and turning the record button on and it's not that at all. We have a learning management system here at Mines called Canvas and we put all of the course materials into the Canvas platform so that all the course is built completely before the course ever launches, before you have any students in the in the course, so uh, I did video lecture recordings. I wrote a handbook of uh, information that you know basically provides supplementary material to what I what I am um, uh, what my lectures are. But it's it's more students teach themselves. In my courses, I, I teach the environmental and social responsibility course, so I have them do a lot of research into, into uh, how regulatory programs are similar from location to location. Throughout my career people have always said that you can't teach environmental permitting because every, everywhere is different. Every state's different, every country's different. And I, I try to show students and have them research and do it through their own research that that if if you pick a country and ten of your colleagues in your class pick a different, another country and you start looking at the commonalities of of those regulatory programs, you'll find that there are a lot of of consistent themes emerge. Then if you couple that with what the the World Bank through the International Finance Corporation require. You look at what equator principles require and some of the development banks like EBRD, the European Bank for Development and Construction, or the African Development Bank. And they all have similar themes. They all look for impact assessment. They all look for transparency. They all look for stakeholder engagement. They all look for management systems and implementation strategies and those kinds of things. So so really, the students I think for my course, it's almost better taught online, because when I do a face-to-face course, I tend to lecture them and tell them that stuff, and when I do it online, I send them to the websites or have them do their research, and then I say, now tell me what you see that's similar, and tell me what's different, and tell me why you think one is better than the other. So you know really the the online delivery is all the work that I do is done up front and then my job when the course actually launches is to be a part of the discussions to grade the assignments that the students do and to keep them in their swim lanes so that they are are going down the road that I want them to get to at the end
0: yeah that sounds great sounds great sounds like a real service that you must have do you get foreign students I mean not foreign but offshore
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, right now we're struggling with accreditation and hopefully we'll have that by the end of the spring semester this year and then we'll have a a, 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 strong, a program that we can actually, actually launch. Right now we've got 12 students who are taking it as non-degree-seeking graduate students. They're taking the sequence of courses yeah. and they're almost halfway through now and so we've got to get that accreditation because um, you can't you can only take up to but not including 50% of the credits and roll them into the program once it's accredited. But we've got one accredited program here at Mines and all the, the courses are okay to, to teach on online. It's just that it's the process that you go through with the Higher Learning Commission to get accredited. So um, but it's it's a I I really enjoy the 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 program and I enjoy teaching this way because it's it's just an opportunity to, to see how different people look at things. But we did have uh, a student from Mongolia. We have a current student in the program that's from Peru, living in Peru. Uh, we had one in Canada. Uh, we had one start but didn't stick with it out of... Uh, uh, Australia so you know, basically the the fees for the program are, are the same for anywhere you live and there's no requirement to ever come to campus so
0: yeah that, that does sound like something that's going to have pretty broad appeal so I hopefully it, the tradition gets carried on for several years because it just seems very uh, it, it's it's filling a, a niche that has always been there
1: yeah and i we did a lot of research before we launched this and before we proposed it to the board of trustees and and we just couldn't find any other school out there that was really offering a program like this and and it really is what i wish i would have known and i it took me 35 years to to learn this stuff and and some of these courses i'm weaker in than others i my colleague and i we review every course that we put out and oh my god i just reviewed the the information systems and mine systems management course which is the the data big data management and all that and i couldn't believe how how stupid i am on that subject <laughs> so i learned a lot just by reviewing the course <laughs>
0: yeah okay great.
1: great great
0: great the other one of the other highlights in your career was being the president of the society of mining engineers and there was kind of a close group of friends that Ascended to the presidency around the same time. Uh, Tim and Jim Arnold, John Mansanti, and your yourself. What uh, you've always been active in SME.
1: I got involved with SME probably later than some, but. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, I kind of catapulted through just because I I seemed to know a lot of people. I started out actually in the coal division because most of the early part of my career was in coal. Mm -hmm. And I got on the... Professional Registration Committee, and and uh, then a buddy of mine picked up the phone one day, and and they asked me to sit on the executive committee for for the coal division. Then a buddy of mine, who I went to college with, called and said, "I need a standby alternate for the mining and exploration division. Would you do that?" And I said, "Sure." So now I was in two divisions, and then I got this this. Uh, wild hair to think that we needed an environmental division. So a group of folks and I worked together to build the environmental division. So then I was the inaugural chair of the environmental division. So uh, then at, at that time, and that was the first new division that SME had had in about 50 years or so or 40 years or something like that. So, so by then I was pretty well known in SME for not Living with the status quo and doing things the way you were supposed to do it, I suppose, is the way to say that. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and it's hard to imagine SME without an environmental division now.
1: Yeah, and and you know they just added a health and safety division a few years back, and and you know, but when I became president of SME, we, my big push then was we used to have 29 members of the board of directors at SME and so often you'd sit down at the board table and you'd have you'd see people literally unwrapping their board package while they're sitting at the table they were so unprepared and so i made it my mission the year before I became president, to look at the governance structure and look at how we were uh, and look at how we were marketing SME to the next generation of of industry professional because SME was on a downslide. I mean, if we we were losing money hand over fist on a regular basis, I, I plotted the the rate of loss of of cash that we had in the bank, and I I called it my seven and seven deal. If we didn't run out of money, if you if you ran that slope out, you had seven years until we were out of money at the rate we were going. Mm. And my predecessor, Arch Schweitzer, put in a uh, revamped the financial plan for the society. And then I and then I my the other part of that seven year thing was if we didn't run out of money in seven years, if you plotted our membership statistics, it, that it, it they, we would run out of members in 14 years if we were losing members at the rate we were losing. So. We, I said we got to do something different. So I, I said we've got to be able to make decisions quickly. So we needed to look at governance and be able to make good, accretive uh, decisions uh, in, at the board level. And we needed to attract the next generation of industry professionals. So, so I asked Jim Arnold, who was two years out, to do the governance because I thought that was going to be the bigger job. And I asked Bridge Modgil, who was the my successor in, as the the SME president to look at the marketing and how we marketed it. And I was absolutely stunned that Jim, the overachiever, came in and and we were able to literally have 29 people resign while I was still president of SME. And then we replaced them with a nine-person board, which allowed me, when I was president, to. Bring in the Underground Construction Association, and we st- we were able to do the registered member of SME, which allows people to be a qualified person registered through the SME. So we were able to do things that we had t- only talked about at SME for many years, and and with a, s- a smaller, more focused board, we were definitely able to to do a lot more.
0: Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, uh, you, you over overcame the uh, the. Dinosaur type image, along with the, uh, the the slow movement of a dinosaur.
1: You know, I, I actually had a, uh, at the Arizona conference. I I was showing a, a, a an update on what we had done, and I, I said I actually showed a picture of a dinosaur saying, "These dinosaurs just rolled over."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't just me. I mean, it, it, the stars aligned properly and we had the right group of people in the right places and the right mentalities because people could see that that it wasn't working what we were doing. And, you know, the definition of insanity.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, another um, conversation around SMA a couple, three years ago, I was talking to Dirk Benzel. He was in Denver for SMA and he was given a talk on tailings, and it was the only talk on tailings at the entire conference, and it was just shortly after Mount Polley. And I'm sure if you went to an equivalent conference in Canada at that time, there would have been lots and lots of talks on tailings. But that seems to be changing now at SME, if, if, I, if I'm correct about
1: that. There's there's a real push right now, and and I'm just the girl who can't say no because when <laughs> my colleague Hugh Miller asked me if I would help spearhead a, an initiative to to uh, raise the level of awareness within the SME organization on tailings in response to the to the uh, how, how do you say it? Bromio?
0: Brum, uh, Brumadino.
1: Brimadino, uh failure in Brazil. Yes. There's so many knee-jerk reactions going on right now, and so many things, so many groups trying to get a finger in the pie. We said we really need to do something in the SME organization. SME is the largest technical society in the world, and we're we're not there. So, so uh, Hugh asked me, Mark Levere, and me to to spearhead the initiative. And we started with uh, putting a, uh, uh, with the 2020 annual meeting. And, And it wasn't that Mark and I are tailings experts, we're not. Uh, I would never claim that. I always worked with tailings experts like you. So uh, I know a lot of people who are tailings experts, as does Mark. Mark spent many years with with Newmont in their their laboratory out there. Yeah. So <clears throat> between the two of us, we know a lot of folks, and we were able to get John Lupo and Risa Fury from Newmont and Stantec re- respectively to agree to, to, uh, to uh, co-chair a symposium. Which is five sessions. There's six sessions available at an SME annual meeting: two on Monday, two on Tuesday, two on Wednesday. So what we've done is we commandeered the, 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 keynote session, and then we have a five-session symposium. So Risa and John are doing the the symposium, and then uh, we asked Rob Cook with Patterson and Cook and Kim Morrison with Newmont to uh, harness the the keynote and so the keynote is going to be the executives viewpoint on on tailings management and if you are watching the news and seeing what's happening to some of those executives at Ballet right now it is high on people's radar screens so we've got literally a full set full conference We've got a mini tailings conference happening concurrent with the SME annual meeting this year. So I'm really proud that we were able to put such such great people, those four people that I mentioned, have just done absolute yeoman's work to get this thing going, and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing the, the output of their labor.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's a really good initiative, and it's obviously overdue. It shouldn't have been kept in, until things became so um accelerated uh, just like the environmental you know it's kind of hard to look back and say what were we thinking about without an environmental division
1: <laughs> well this is a as an ad hoc committee that, yeah. that the president has formed ad yeah. hoc committees are usually they they either run their, their purpose and go away or they become some other uh Part of SME, they this I think this group is is here to stay. the The interest that we've had from the the tailings professionals and civil geotechnical professionals in in the organization has been very very strong, and I'd like to see it either be you know I, I've heard some talk about a division, uh, the, the 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 that's a possibility, but divisions bring a lot bring with them a lot of baggage. I think the the mm. Easiest first step is a standing committee so that there is there's a committee organized and formalized so that we always have programming the appropriate level of programming for the discipline relative to the the industry demand and I think that that, that SME can do what it needs to do um, e- either way but it's it's really a matter of what what makes most sense
0: yeah, and I'm I'm convinced that it's going to work out for the for the best. So, it, it's uh, it's a nice step for the society to take.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to the end of February and and uh, seeing the fruits of everybody's labors because there's a lot of people who put a lot of hard work into this. Yeah, that's. And I think that we're right now we're planning on having two textbooks come out of this. Uh, the first will be the the symposium's uh, proceedings because the speakers are giving pre- short presentations and then there's going to be round tables in the session amongst the the audience and the the speakers the, the and so we'll we'll get a good capture of the the content and and it'll be similar to what you've done, Brian, in your Elko roundtables, where it isn't where where you take the content that gets said in the discussion, and you take the names out so that people don't get worried about having speaking up and having their company say, "Oh my God, you didn't say that, did you?" So um, we'll take the names out. We'll just take the content forward, and that'll be published in the symposium proceedings, and then down the road. We're looking at a technical manual for tailings design. Uh, it's not intended to relate, re- replace tailings design engineers, but it is intended to get the technical information out there so that because it's been a long. Steve Steve Vick's book was a good book. But it's been out there a long time, and there's some things like the geological aspects and, and and that are so important to a facility that that aren't as well covered as 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 you might do knowing what we know today. So so we're we're planning to move that forward and have an initial uh, dis- discussion of a, of a kind of a straw man outline for that book. Uh, on the Tuesday of the, after the symposium, Tuesday afternoon after the symposium. So we're hoping people will be interested to throw their hats in the ring and help us out in, in putting this manual together, yourself included, buddy.
0: Hey, I'd, I'd be happy to. You know, uh, a few years ago, Tom Kerr and I co-authored the sub-subsection on tailings management in the SMA Mining Engineering Handbook, and our contribution actually started out being something like 150 typed pages with figures and and graphics and that might be a decent starting point yeah there, there would be a lot of uh, copyright considerations because of where the illustrations came from uh, but it, it still might be a good beginning point
1: well what I'm hoping uh, tentatively uh, right now Kim Morrison with Newmont and Al Gibson with uh, he's an independent, uh, and I don't know if Knight Pizzold's gonna grab him and and have him be affiliated. But right now he's doing it as an independent, so we'll see where that goes. But they they have uh, agreed tentatively to be the the co-editors of the document, and so I'm sure that that any if we don't have to invent a wheel, I don't think we should. We're also at the annual meeting having a the alphabet soup meeting on Sunday where we've invited members of the ICMM team Dirk Van Zyl for example and Ashto, and and you know all the the tailings dams in the you know people who have have an interest in stakeholders in tailings dams in the United States and elsewhere meeting to just talk about what everybody's doing because there's so many initiatives going on
0: there there are and we don't need any more guidance documents Unless one is held up as being a global guidance document. Um, It's not so common now, but it used to be that people would say, why why are you using a Canadian guideline for my tailings facility in, you know, XYZ country? And we say, well, it's because you don't have one here and it's a really good document.
1: Yeah, and we're we're sensitive to that and, and what we're we're planning to do is this initiative, the the, the technical manual, and it's long overdue from SME because SME does more technical mining manuals for mining than any any other organization in the world. But we had approached back in September, we had approached the Global Mineral Professional Alliance. GMPA, yeah. which is a consortium of technical societies. It, it includes c- the Canadians, the South Africans, the Australians, the Brits, the Chileans, the Peruvians. I'm sure I've missed somebody, but but uh, it, what we're trying to do is bring that global flavor in. And we've asked each of and GMPA unanimously agreed that they wanted to support the book the development of the book and that they would put forward experts from their jurisdictions or areas so that we could get that international flavor factored into the content
0: No, okay great great no it's uh it'll be very helpful for the entire industry
1: yeah, we're, we're I'm looking forward to that too. We've 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 bit off a lot of chunks of elephant on this in trying to eat this elephant here, but
0: yeah, <laughs> one bite right, at a time. It's right.
1: a big it's a big uh, challenge, but but I'm pretty excited because, um, like I said, I'm not I'm no tailings expert, but I know a lot of you guys in the business who are, and there's a lot of people who are absolutely willing to jump in and roll their shirt sleeves up and help out.
0: Absolutely, absolutely
1: because the industry just can't take any more failures i mean it is killing our license to operate
0: it is yeah it, it certainly is and barbara I, I guess maybe we can move on and maybe maybe you could share with us something that's been especially memorable from your career something that's uh, maybe a highlight or low light of your career that you could share
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i i will tell you that uh Jack Burst was a previous president of SME and he said getting to be the president of SME was the capstone of his career and I think that that is being elected by your peers to be the president of the largest technical society in the world is 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 absolutely awesome I you know when I got my picture on the cover of mining engineering I was always a Dr. Hook fan back in my day and I, yeah. and, I, I and it was it was to me the same as as dr Hook's song getting your picture on the cover of the rolling stone what, it is. what is to music getting on the cover of the rolling stone cover of mining engineering was that but this professional masters program is kind of my swan song is that the is that the word that you used for it's kind of the the my last great act of defiance because i've never done any educational work work you know from a from uh, uh, academics, academics is a whole other world, but it's I, I am really enjoying doing this program because it's a, it's it's a potential legacy to leave, and and it's something that I think is is going to be appreciated down the road. I don't want it to be static it, because it's online. It can we can change it as often as we need to based on what kind of feedback we get and what the industry needs and and perceives that that, that they need the future engineers to to be able to do when they get out of school. So so those are the two things that we've already talked about in this discussion that that uh, you know are most important to me. Except of course my grandson who who is now 1 year old. So there there is that and he's pretty important too.
0: Yeah, you got it. absolutely absolutely. So Barbara, here's a question that I ask of everybody on the podcast and it's about outer space mining. What do you think about outer space mining, or whether it's asteroids or the moon or anything else that's not terrestrial? What, uh, what do you think about that?
1: Remember when I said we have one program that is approved by the Higher Learning Commission for online delivery at mines? Yeah. That is our space resources program, and there is indeed a mining element in that so i think it is the way of the future i think that everything that we're teaching in our master's program is is relevant to those space resource programs. Transportation is a little bit different, but transportation is always an extremely significant cost in the mining sector, whether you're in the outback of Australia, or in in the most rural part of Africa, or if you're on the moon, or Mars, or wherever. It's just, you've got to, you know, the logistics of getting materials from point A to point B, and I'll tell you that's one of those things they don't teach in school, and to become a mining engineer is, The logistics and the transportation systems, other than you know, Mm. haul roads in the mine getting out of the mine. So, yeah, so uh, you know, to me, I I think that it's definitely a part of the future, and uh, it's it's just a matter of of time until it becomes commercialized.
0: Yeah, and there's some amazing things out there aside from the things that we're already mining right now, especially the helium three on the moon, I think is going to be one of the first things that's undertaken just so we can have the cold fusion without the radioactive waste yeah yeah
1: yeah no i i i think you're right i I think it's 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 just a matter of time
0: yeah well barb do you have any parting words for our listeners
1: oh i don't know i probably talked way longer than you were (laughs) expecting So, no, I, I just appreciate you, you know, asking me to share my thoughts and appreciate your time, Brian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I enjoyed catching up with you. And it's always nice to find out what you've been up to.
1: Yep. And the same with me.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Barb.
1: Okay. Thanks, Brian. Ciao. Bye.
0: Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.